0: The Colossians. Col- We're going to be uh, looking at this, looking at the first few verses in Colossians. The title of the series is two weeks: this week and next week. Uh, the gospel then and now, and, and the title kind of has a couple of different meanings. The primary meaning for what I'm using that title for, we we'll actually talk about next week. But in way of introduction, talking about the gospel then and now, the idea of perception of the gospel. You know, there is a time that in America where you could walk up to somebody and ask them what is the gospel and they could probably give you a pretty articulate idea of what it meant what was involved in it, who it was about, what was kind of the ideas surrounding it. Regardless of what their religion was regardless of whether they're a follower of Christ, whether they're agnostic, atheist, whatever they probably had a pretty good idea of what the gospel was about. And then as time goes by people have, are in church less and less, the culture shifts and changes. And even by the 70s, where you're still having musicals like Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar, where the idea of the gospel is still very culturally normative, if you will, the ideas behind it and what, it's, what it really means starts fading away. Toward now, if I were to go to my co-workers and ask them, what is the gospel at best? they might be able to say, it's got something to do with Jesus. It's, some, it's that old stuff you hear in churches. And that's about all you're going to get. They don't know what the gospel is. When I say they, the, the unbelievers, people that aren't Christians. But what's getting scary and concerning is now when we come into our own churches and we ask, what is the gospel? Now, sometimes the answer is still a bit fuzzy. It's still a little unclear. And so we're going to talk about the gospel but, first of all, I hope this is nothing new. that that that's that is the prayer that what we talk about is all in review of the gospel. We look at it and it's in, at the end of two weeks, you guys go, Todd, great review, thank you. I appreciate it, A- and learn some things that I can do with that. Good. That's the idea. Hopefully, nothing new gets taught because it's the gospel, right? We should know this stuff, right? You know And yet, as I studied Colossians, for me, and I mean, I was saved at five. I've been saved since thirty-six years. You know, I've been a Christian, raised, and dad's the preacher, and all that. But even as I studied Colossians and looked at what the God, how Paul taught the gospel there, I learned some stuff. And more than that, I learned what to do with it, and started learning how to apply it better in my life. So I, hopefully, we'll, hopefully everything's in review. But if not, I think there'll be some things that we can take away from looking at Colossians. See, Epaphras was a disciple of Paul, and he took the gospel to the city of Colossae. More than likely, he got saved under Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and so he, hey, he got gung-ho. He understood what the gospel was about. He said, Paul, I'm out of here. I'm going to Colossae. He probably hung out at Laodicea and maybe a couple of other places, but he went to Colossae, and the result is the birth of a church. Then Paul, in response to the report from a a Epaphras, he plants the church, and he's like, this is so great, I've got to go tell Paul about it. So he goes to Paul and he tells him about what's going on there. And the result is Paul writing a letter to Colossi, writing the letter of Colossians. Paul's never met, met this church. He's never met these people, but they're a second generation grandchildren spiritually of his. And so we start in Colossians chapter one, and we're going to let me read for you. And I'm reading from the ESV and follow along in Colossians chapter one as I read one through eight. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in, in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. In this opening paragraph of Colossians, we get a great description of what the gospel is and what the gospel does but paul then goes on to expound on this gospel through the rest of the letter so let's take a look at what we can learn about the gospel from the passage so nine descriptions of the gospel now if you turn your notes over you'll see that we end at number six today maybe if we get through it and uh, we'll finish off next week with the last three so nine descriptions of the gospel part one so first and foremost when we talk about the gospel, that table's making jokes and laughing. <laughs> they do it when I'm up there, talking. <laughs> Is this what you get every week, too? <laughs> okay. Well, I'll keep Dana in line. Um, <laughs> number one, all right, first of all, the gospel is Christ centered. The gospel is Christ-centered. And, and this is one of those that, like I said, if you ask somebody what the gospel is, what it's about, you know, maybe they've seen the passion of the Christ. Maybe they, they pay attention to the movies on TV at Easter time. Whatever it is, they probably have an idea that it's got something to do with Jesus. Or they know the Easter story. But the reality is they're dead on in the fact that the gospel is Christ-centered. Um, look at verses. Let me read verses 2 again. And, as, and just notice, and this is just in this first paragraph where Christ is central to the gospel and what he's talking about. To the saints and fellow faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. They're, they're, they're brothers not in anything else. They're not brothers because they're all Greek. They're not brothers because they all like the same rock bands. They're, not, they're brothers in Christ. You know, that's what holds them together. That's where Paul can write a letter to people he's never met and say, you are my faithful brothers because you're in Christ. My faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is important. Remember, Paul's Jewish. He would have very likely, when, when he was writing letters in the past and things like that, before he knew Christ, would have often thanked God and would have talked about God all the time. But in this time as we thank God, but he deci- he makes it very clear that it's not just God, but it's God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And why is that? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is what set Christianity apart from where He came from in Judaism. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's central to the gospel. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have, and then all the way down in verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And you literally could just about replace Christ. He's a faithful minister of the gospel on your behalf. Paul says them both and uses them both in his epistles as he writes. Christ is, the gospel is Christ-centered. The gospel equals, and, and going, okay, so it's Christ-centered, but you're talking about the gospel. What exactly is the gospel? This is where we kind of get into, not, not, not just descriptions, but here we're going to talk about what the definition of the gospel is. And I'm going to give my definition, and you could read different books on the gospel, and they'll use a little bit different words, but they always encapsulate most of these same ideas, and you guys will get the idea of it. But the gospel, first of all, the gospel equals the good news. That's just the idea of what the word is, the good news. Which is great because it is the good news. It's the good news. It's, it, when we're talking about the gospel, thinking, okay, it's the story of good news. This is good information being given to people. It's positive. It's great. It makes a difference in their life. It's the good news. But ultimately, the good news is about Jesus Christ. It equals Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. It's not, I mean, it's, it's, He is central to it, but he is the essence of it. My shorthand for the gospel is someone asked me and they're saved and I'm not needing to lead them to Christ I says okay Todd what's the gospel I use and it's just the person and work of Jesus Christ and that's what we're going to look at the first point you have there or the next point there it's the person of Christ or the yeah the person of Christ going, okay the person what do you mean by that it's two things first of all it's the incarnation and In Jesus God was born a man tell you what it, Paul, remember we're talking he starts off this he starts off here and he's thanking God for what the gospel has done in the Colossians' life in this passage. Oh, this has made a change in your life, Colossians. It's been the gospel. The gospel's made an impact. The gospel's something done, something great. And he opens up with that, but then through the rest of the book, he talks about the gospel in various ways. And one of the great passages he talks about the gospel is when he gets into this Christological passage of Colossians chapter one, verses fourteen through twenty. And it's central to what goes on in the gospel. And listen to it. Follow along um, in Colossians. And by the way, we're staying in Colossians the whole time. So just stay there and flip a couple of pages as we bounce around. Colossians 1, verse 14. In whom, talking about Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Right there. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is God incarnate. He is God come down. Jesus, God born as a man. For by him all things were created. Jesus is the creator God in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Again, another statement of His deity. In Him the fullness, the essence, the, the deity of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. And through whom? Through Christ. The gospel, Christ is central to the gospel. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. You guys, as we read through that, there's just a ton of stuff. And it's all about Jesus. I'm just trying to pull out of that just enough to let us understand and get an idea of, okay, this is all about Jesus. There's a whole lot there. We could, You could have a whole series of lessons just out of that passage right there. My small group is going, oh boy, can you? <laughs> that was... That was eight months, wasn't it, Todd, that we went on that? Might have been. Um, but there's a ton of stuff just in that passage about who Jesus is and what he does. And they're all essential to his role as God in the gospel. He is it's the, he is the person of Christ in incarnation. Um, in verse... In verse Uh, In chapter 2, verse 9, it also reiterates this. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Again, it's the idea of incarnate. But not only does he come to earth as God, but then he has a sinless life. Although a man, Christ lived a sinless, perfect life. You see, our Savior is not a distant being that has no understanding of who we are. Our Savior is a God who loves us enough to leave heaven to be born as a man and experience all the sufferings and experience the temptations and experience them to a far further extent than we ever will that's the christ of the gospel it's the person of christ he's god but he's a god that came near he's a god that came with us He's a god that is near us with us he came to earth as a man but it's not just the person of christ that's important to the gospel it's like okay he's god we get that but it's what he did it's the work of christ Look at, uh, first of all, the work of Christ. And this is where, okay, I, I know what the gospel is, Todd. It's, it's, it's the whole Easter thing, right? Isn't it? You know, he's, he comes in, you know, he comes into Jerusalem, and then they, they, they arrest him. He's got Judas' kid, he got the Last Supper, and Judas' kiss, and then, you know, the garden, Gethsemane so thing happens in there, and then he gets arrested, and then they yell and scream, crucify him, and he sees a couple, a couple of, you've got, you got Pilate, and you got this Herod guy, He sees them, eventually they crucify him, he's buried, he resurrects, and that's the gospel. Yeah, that's the story. That's what's going on. Well, let's look at what's going on. Let's look at the work here that's happening and why it's important to the gospel. First of all, death. The work of Christ. The first work was death. Look at chapter 1, starting in verse 20. Verse 20 says, "...and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven." Making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Pretty clear. Death, pretty important here. How are we reconciled? How are we brought back to God? We're enemies of God, very clear. Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's a description of us. That's, you know, Colossi wasn't especially evil. That, that's us. Hostile mind, doing evil deeds. The reconciliation came through the work of Christ in His death. In in chapter 2, look at verses 13 and 14. I love this passage. The second part of 13 starting off with having forgiven us all our trespasses. I like that. That's a good thing. I've got many trespasses. I've got many sins. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Just think of, think of every sin, everything wrong I've done, the very sin nature given to me by being born in the race of Adam. And every debt that this puts me under in Christ, or every debt that I have to God because of this sin, written down, put in a ledger, and then as Christ is nailed to the cross... His hand, my debt, and the nail. And it is nailed to the cross, the blood is shed over it, and it's taken care of. I just, I love the imagery there. What a powerful picture of the fact that it's done, it's nailed to the cross, it's completed, it's finished. But it took a death, it took the shedding of blood. Our sins nailed to the cross, the debt is paid. That's the picture we get in this passage. We are evil. You know, Chris made this clear. He, when talking about, um, you know, do we need to uh, evangelize kids? Yeah, why? Because they're evil. We are evil. We can go to various passages in the Bible that makes it real clear that That apart from God, we're evil. We're not nice people. We are evil. We are hostile, and we are in rebellion against God. Our sin is vile to God and creates a debt that demands the payment of death. Jesus is our death substitute. It is His death that placates God's wrath for us. We're starting to get a picture of the gospel. We're vile. We're evil. We deserve nothing. And we have a God that says, we can, we, can, we can take care of this. First, a God that came to earth, incarnate. And then a God that was willing to die because a death was required to pay the price for that debt. Then we have a burial. I'm not going to go into this. There's just... It's a little beyond me theologically, but the reality is in chapter 2, verses 12, it says, In Him also... You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Christ was buried, and and we don't think a lot about the significance of that in the gospel, but what it comes into play is our identity in baptism with him, and and that we are buried, or in baptism, we are buried with him and raised up. And again, I just don't have time, and I didn't do all the study to really link in what the issues are there. But the reality, when we talk about the work of Christ in the gospel, it's death. It's burial. And then, of course, the big one we think about is the resurrection. Oh, yes, that's why we have Easter. Yes, that's why we celebrate Easter. And that's why we talk about that every Sunday is Easter, because every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection. Um, Looking again in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith and the powerful working of God. Okay, wait a second. Now, you're, Todd, you're not talking about Jesus there. He, he's talking about us. Yeah, we're raised with Him. Okay, think about that. He's got to be raised already, right? Before we're raised with Him. Raised with Him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's me, God made alive together with Him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. We never, we just simply cannot underestimate the importance of the resurrection. Paul himself basically said, if there is no resurrection, all this is useless. It's a waste. There's no value to it. Um, I can't remember the, the guy's name. It was a, uh, some bishop type of guy or something like or cardinal type of a dude was interviewed. And it was basically asked, because it was in the midst of a discussions of whether the, the, the resurrection actually took place or not. And he was asked, if, if, if they, found, they found a tomb, and it was proven that it was the tomb of Jesus, and it was opened up, and the body was there, what would that do to you and your belief system? He goes, it would be nothing because he's resurrected in my heart. What? No, it would shatter our belief system because we have a savior that was resurrected. And why? Because he's resurrected so that we can be raised with him, so that we can be made alive together with him. And if Jesus was not resurrected and made alive, then we cannot be resurrected and made alive. Our hope comes, the hope we have to be, we are dead in our sins, we are dead in our trespasses. Okay, the payment is paid on the cross, the blood is shed. Well, if I'm dead in my trespasses, what hope do I have of being raised and being made alive in Christ? Is having a living Christ. And if we don't have a living Christ, we have nothing to be made alive to or be made alive with. And we really probably don't have a God capable of making us alive. Well, the resurrection is absolutely essential. And if the resurrection was ever proven, which we know it won't be, that it's not real, we've simply, we, all that we do is folly, as Paul says. We are to be pitied. But we're not to be pitied. The tomb is empty, and we have a resurrected Savior. If there is no resurrection, there is no gospel. In order for us to be made alive out of our dead sinful state, we must have a gospel with resurrection power. The victory of Jesus is not only over sin, which is death paid for, but the victory of Jesus is also over death, which we are condemned to. Victory over sin and death. That's the resurrection. What else in the, the work of Christ? have got the death, burial, resurrection. Then we have ascension and reign. Ascension and reign. Christ, after being resurrected, spent 40 days on earth before ascending to heaven. And there, sitting at the right hand of God. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 1. Verse 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ. I have. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Above. Above where? Above, where God is. Specifically, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Christ did not stay on the earth. Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In Christ, right hand of God in heaven. Of course, Jesus didn't stay on the earth after his resurrection. He'd still be here, right? Right? But his ascension is more than just getting him out of the way so the apostles could take over. We kind of sometimes we'll look at it just as a plot point. Right? Oh, the resurrection. Oh, awesome, we got the resurrection stuff. And then we want to jump to Acts chapter 2. You know, maybe we'll, we'll pause at Acts 1.8 when the, you know, and stuff, whenever the so the power and Jesus says the power is going to come, and then we have the ascension. It takes place. And we think, oh yeah, well, Jesus had to get out of the way. It's more than that. It's more than getting him out of the way to take over. Christ ascended to heaven to the right hand of God. There he is, our advocate and Lord reigning over us. This is where the good news of the gospel stops being something to be read in history. But understand, un, but it needs to be understood as something that's happening right now. See, if you think about it, when we talk about the works of Christ, death has happened in the past. It's a historical event. He was crucified, buried, buried in a tomb, historical event. It happened. It's done. Dead. Buried. Resurrected. Historical event. Proof. People saw him alive. It's happened. It's a verifiable historical event. He resurrected. It happened in the past. The resurrection took place. The ascension. The ascension took place. It happened. People saw him go up into the clouds. It's a historical event, but he goes up to do something that hasn't stopped happening. And all of a sudden now we're moving from a historical event of the gospel that we look back and see what happened, which is incredibly important, but we start to see pieces of the gospel that haven't stopped. Pieces of the gospel are no longer just part of history books and part of stories and part of things that we tell kids in Sunday school, but they're things that are continuing to go on now that make an impact in our life. Jesus' work in the gospel is not stopped. Yes, the price is paid. It is finished. And no more payment is required. Please don't misunderstand me on that. It is finished. The price that get paid over and over again. Hebrews is incredibly clear on that. No more payment is required. Our salvation is about what Jesus has done. We talked about this. The difference of religions, it's all about what we do versus what Jesus has done. And we we hold on to what Jesus has done for us that we cannot do for ourselves. That is what we hold on to. But once saved, the gospel is still relevant in what Jesus is currently doing. Death, burial, resurrection... Ascension and reign. He's reigning over us. But we don't don't even stop at just what He's doing now. The gospel includes His return and what's going to happen in the future. Again, look at chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. For when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will, will appear with him in glory. When he appears, he's not talking about a vision. He's not talking about, oh, I will, you know, we'll all sit in a circle, have a seance, and have visions of Christ. When he appears to me in a, in a clay. No, he's talking about the return of Christ. He's talking about the fact that we have a Savior that ascended, is at the ha- at the right hand of God and reigning, but is going to come back. There is the return of Christ that is going to happen. He goes, okay, Todd, that's really cool. You know, that's the whole Armageddon thing and everything. That's going to be great. But, but what's that got to do with the gospel? Look at, look at chapter 3, verse 4 again. When Christ, who is your life, appears, when Jesus comes again, then you also will appear with Him in glory. You see, when we get saved, we have salvation, right? Salvation comes justification. God looks at us, and we'll see this in a little bit this week or next, about what happens at salvation, the fact that God looks at us and says, you are righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ. Salvation. Justification occurs. Then we've been saved. Now what happens in our life? It's sanctification. The continued work of the gospel, the reign of Christ in our life today. The gospel continues to work. The reign of Christ today is sanctification. That's that growth. That's becoming more Christ-like. That's our spiritual growth, right? We get that. We're supposed to grow. That's discipleship. It's small group. It's learning the Bible. And we're continually sanctified. But guess what? Has anybody yet become perfect at obeying all that the Bible tells us to do? I'm terrible at it. And what I've found is the harder I try, the worse I am but when he appears we will appear with him in glory in a glorified body the sin nature wiped away no more battle of a transformed soul against a fleshly sinful nature no more battles of the flesh and the soul. it's over we're in heaven glorified bodies we stand before god justified perfectly forever no more sin That is the ultimate end of the gospel. The work of Jesus to return and take us to heaven. The goal is not just to be saved. The goal is to be saved and to grow and to ultimately be before God glorified in a perfect body and a perfect soul. Worshiping God perfectly for eternity. That's what we're aiming towards. That's that future aspect coming with the return of Christ. Christ is central to the gospel, in the work that He has done, the work that He is doing, and in the work that is yet to come. The good news is also that Christ will return, and that we will appear with Him and gl- Him glorified, eternally righteous. Then the work of the gospel will have been finally completed in us. The gospel is Christ centered a long point. These others will move a little quicker. Secondly, the gospel is from God. Well, Todd, now you're just being just obvious. It is obvious. But man, it's one of those that we just, you can't, can't jump past this one too quick. Look at verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. Here Paul, he's heard about what the gospel has done at Colossae and he's he, he, he's, he's thinking and he's excited about what the gospel has done in the church there. And what's he saying in verse 3? We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, why do you think he thanks God? Here he's thanking God, and we've already read the other verses. He's thanking God for all the things the gospel has occurred. Well, he's thanking God because that's where the gospel comes from. That's the source. That's the where it originates. Three points under this. First of all, it's God's wrath that requires the gospel. If there is no wrath or judgment of sin, then there is no need for the gospel. Chapter 3. Turn that page and look at chapter 3. In chapter 3 in Paul's letter here, he starts moving into the, uh, the, the law, if you will. He starts telling Christian living. Hey, this is how you're supposed to live. This is how you're not supposed to live. This is what you're supposed to be like now that you're a Christian. And this is what he says in verse 5. Put to death, therefore. Kill. Stop doing what is earthly in you. And he describes it. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It's in this list of sins that violate God's law that Paul points to God's wrath, and he then he then proceeds. If we were to read verses seven and on, to get to begin giving us even more things that were to obey, doing and ways that were to begin living. But the reality is when we read these things, we read them and realize we can never live up to these things, and we cannot perfectly obey them, and therefore we are doomed to receive the wrath of God's judgment. It says the wrath of God is coming. It's very popular today, even in with Christians in the evangelical world, to kind of, Set aside God's wrath. Set aside the judgment. Set aside the realities of hell and what happens when the gospel is not, when our lives are not intervened by the gospel. It's very nice to set those aside. And the reality, it's really uncomfortable to talk about God's wrath. It's not fun. We don't like to talk about it. Because all of a sudden, we start thinking about people that are really nice people. But they're in danger of God's wrath. They're on. the road that they're taking is leading to hell, to eternal torment, to damnation. Those are the realities. The gospel is what God's wrath requires. But God's love provides the gospel. While we are in our sin while we have a debt to God that we can never repay, while we are enemies and in rebellion to God, God chose us. Chapter 3 still, and, and drop down to verse 12. Just look at the first phrase here. Again, this is in the midst of Paul telling the church at Colossae, this is the way you're supposed to live. This is what it's like to be a Christian. This is, this is what, what our lives should look like now. But in the middle of that, this is what he says. He says, put on then. He's about to tell them what to put on. These are the good things to put on in your life. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. God's chosen ones, holy or set apart and beloved, deeply, deeply loved, special, significantly loved. God's chosen ones. God, in His love, chooses to set us apart for the gospel. So we just talked about the wrath to come. I can't live up to these laws. Bruce has got done with a series on the Ten Commandments. And Bruce is dead on because every time he, he's t- teaching these commandments and he, he would preach through that and, and by the end of it you're going, oh, I can't measure up to that. And that was kind of the, the essence of it is I can't measure up to that but I need to measure up to that. Well, what's my hope? Because God's wrath is coming, and the hope was always Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. We need a transformed heart. We need to hold on to what Jesus has already done for us. That's the gospel. See, we are God's chosen ones. Subject to God's wrath, we can't live up to the law. We can't live up to the requirements that it would take to live perfectly before God and just earn our way. Can't do it. No one can. Oh, well, that's not good news. No, the good news is is we are God's chosen. That God chose us, selected us, set us apart. Okay, His wrath is coming. You deserve the wrath. We I'm going to pull you out of that, set you apart because you're loved. That's who we are in Christ. God's love provides the gospel. God's power enables the gospel. It is God's effort to save us. It takes a supernatural power that only God possesses to make live what is dead. Again, looking at chapter 2, 12 and 13, verse we already looked at. But having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. The powerful working of God. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses... And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. It's God's power that enables the gospel. When we think of the gospel, we think of Jesus. And for good reason, as the gospel is Christ-centric. But let's understand that it is God's plan of redemption to send Jesus. It is God's wrath that must be appeased. It is God's love that was willing to give up his son. It is God's power that raised Christ and raises us from the dead. It is God's gospel. It is God's good news to the world. But what happens is we start thinking about these oh, you got Jesus and he, God incarnate and all this stuff and the, how his work in the past and he's, he's reigning and then he's going to return and it's oh, all this big stuff. Then God is coming from God and he's God. for Oh, wow, this is and he's in heaven and he's way out there. And it starts to become very abstract and weird. It, and before we go too far we need to stop and remember especially the the tone and the reality of what Paul says in these first verses of this chapter and it tells us that the gospel is also personal the gospel is personal look at look at chapter 1 again and just let me start reading in verse 3 and just as I read through this listen to how personal this is We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The gospel is personal. I could have used the word relational there as well. The gospel is personal and relational. It touches us. Chapter 4, verse 12, and let me just read it for you. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. The gospel is not just an abstract idea. It is not just a deep theological concept to be studied and dissected, although well worth being studied and well worth being understood fully. But the gospel is not just this thing that's out there or this abstract idea or just a good story for Easter time. The gospel is for you. The gospel is for me. The gospel is for people. The gospel was personally shared by Paul to Epaphras. Epaphras personally went to Colossae and brought the gospel to a city that had never heard. The people in the church of Colossae heard and understood and received, personally received the gospel. And we have many stories in this room of the gospel's impact. And they all are personal, never private, but deeply personal. Personal and we could talk and we could share and it would be worth the time if we had the time to take it to talk about the gospel's personal impact on your life. And my guess is that personal impact wasn't just the story of the gospel, but it was somebody else's life poured into you with the gospel. The gospel is personal. It's not just this abstract thing. It's not just theology. And I love theology. I mean, I'm kind of a geek with it. But it's so much more. The gospel is personal. And if the gospel, the gospel is personal, and and if it's personal, it can't be limited to just a specific race or creed or religion or anything like that. Which brings us to the next point. The gospel is universal. Just very quickly, the gospel is universal. Verse 6 of chapter 1 says, which has come to you, talk about the gospel, the gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. Exactly what Paul means there, I'm not exactly sure because obviously the entire world didn't get saved at this point. But the whole world or known world at that time was receiving the gospel, pieces of it, parts of it. It was being preached and it was bearing fruit and it was growing. Chapter 1 verse 27 though, excuse me, makes it very clear the gospel draws people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. It is not limited to just the Jews. And 1, verse 27 says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of His mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This whole passage, you don't have to go, go into it. It's a significant thing. It's not limited to the Jews. In fact, one of the great mysteries that Paul espoused here is the fact that the gospel was no longer limited to the Jewish nation, and the, but God, whenever he, Jesus came, He broadened it. He opened it up. Now it was Jews and Gentiles. Also, the gospel is not limited by race, social status, economic status, any kind of status. It doesn't matter who you are. Chapter 3, verse 11. He says, Here, there is not Greek and Jew. There is not Greek and Jew. Talking about the different races. There is not circumcised and uncircumcised. Different religions. There's not barbarian. There's not Scythian. Talking about just different races, different ways of living, different cultures. There is not slave and free. Different statuses that occur in any culture. But Christ is all and in all. The gospel is personal. It's shared to anyone because it is universal. And the way it is done, we're probably only going to get through five of these. The gospel is proclaimed. Again, reading that first paragraph in chapter 1. Start reading verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. They heard it. They heard the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras. Learned it from Epaphras. It means he engaged them. He proclaimed. He taught. He's our fellow servant and faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. If you looked up every instance of the word gospel in the New Testament, you would discover how overwhelmingly often the good news is made known through proclamation. A couple of thoughts, real quick. The gospel is to be proclaimed to everyone. I'm not sure if that sentence makes sense the way it's in your notes, but the idea is to everyone proclaim it to everyone. The last part of chapter 1, Paul's basically kind of describing his ministry and what he's doing. And in verse 27, he says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of His glory, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he says, here's what we do about that. Verse 28, Him, Christ, Him we proclaim, warning every man and teaching everyone With all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You get that? Proclaiming, warning, teaching. Who? Everyone. So that they may do what? Present who? Everyone mature in Christ. He's not limiting it. Yes, he was strategic. There were certain people he knew he may never talk to. But he never talked to the people at Colossae. But his goal was that everyone would be presented with the gospel. Turn to chapter 4 now as we come to the end here. We'll finish off with a couple of thoughts from the end of this letter. Look at chapter 4, verse, starting in verse 2. When talking about proclaiming the gospel, we start with prayer. That's where Paul started. He writes this letter. Remember, in Paul, he's, he's trying to do the work of God. He's trying to do the work of the gospel. He's trying to proclaim it to every man. And what does he, what does he tell the Colossians? He says, "...continue steadfastly in prayer." being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. This is what he wants to be prayed for. That God may open to us a door for the Word. What's the Word? It's the Word of the Gospel, the Word of God. To declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison. That, verse 4, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Again, there's a, that's a whole lesson by itself right there. But prayer is a place to start. and This isn't a lesson on evangelism, but there's no way to talk about the gospel without talking about the fact that it must be proclaimed. Our goal is to proclaim it to everyone, and you have a portion of everyone around you. The starting place is prayer. Prayer that we have an open door. Prayer that we can declare the mystery of Christ, the gospel. A prayer that we should be willing to suffer for by going to prison like Paul did. A prayer that we'd be willing to take on that suffering and then make it clear in our speech that we would not mumble, that we would not be unclear, that we would not be vague, that we would be clear of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. That's the prayer. But he continues on as he encourages them in verse 5 and he tells them, Now you guys, you be prepared. Be prepared. You be prepared. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Who's outsiders? Those outside the church. Unbelievers, the unsaved. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Be prepared. Without preparation, we don't take the opportunities and... Effectively when they come. Without preparation, we're not we're not ready to engage people. Whenever the opportunities, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell on Chris, I, um, it, just because it was a great example of being prepared and doing what he ought to do. He he lives what he preaches. Um, I was Saturday, yeah, Saturday after VBS. I was up in the auditorium and and just doing stuff for video and getting ready for Sunday and things like that. And Chris came in and he just needed to check on some things with me and in the auditorium and stuff and while there a guy came in the back door. I don't know where he came from. He came in off the street or whatever and he wanted a drink or he wanted to case the joint to rob it later. I don't know. Looked like it could be either one. <laughs> Both. But he came in and he wanted a drink and Chris, okay, let's go get a drink. And he went and got him got him some water and was talking to him and as I hear them, and I, and I'm just and I'm working, but as I hear them walking through the auditorium, I hear Chris asking questions that meant only one thing. The gospel was being shared. This guy may never come back in the doors, but he's part of everyone. And that Chris didn't do that because this great conviction of God came upon him at that moment and the light shone on him and said, Chris, you must now share the gospel to this man. No, it came because he was prepared. He's prepared in his heart and prayer. He's prepared because he knows what the gospel is and how to share it. And when the opportunity came, it was just, hey, it's what you do. I may never talk to this guy again. I didn't, I didn't even talk to Chris about it. But I noticed it. And I thought, that comes because you're prepared. Proclaim. That's, uh, how many do we get through? Five? Not bad. We've got four more descriptions of the gospel to come next week. I challenge you to read Colossians. Take you about 10-15 minutes. And think about Christ and the gospel as you read through it. But let's pray. We need to get on upstairs. God, you are the giver of the gospel. You are the giver of your son, Jesus, and we thank you for it. Just ask that we would take to heart what we see in this passage, that we would be prepared to proclaim this truth, that we would be prayed up, that the opportunities would come. That we would have a passion to share it like Paul did. That we would be willing to suffer for it as Paul went to prison for it. God, let us love the gospel and love you. In Jesus Christ.